Welcome to the Rumple and the Frog Show for Stitchers. I'm Rumple. And I'm the Frog, providing you with an enchanting escape of stitches and stories. We're so glad you've joined us for fairy tales, fiber tales, and conversations about our most favorite thing. Yarn. Yarn. <laughs> awesome. So today is part three in our mini-series on real-life giants. And yes. today we'll be discussing vampires. Wow. Uh, uh. <laughs> vampires oh. but before we take a trip to romania yes it's important that we reflect on rhinebeck right yes absolutely so this okay. is uh instead of uh just so folks know instead of us talking about our works in progress or finished objects or things like that we are this is our common threads this week yeah because we both have common narratives about our experience trying virtual New York Sheep and Wool 2020. So Noel, tell me about your experience. What did you do? What didn't you do? What did you love? What didn't you love? I'm so curious. Well, I bought my ticket. Yes. <laughs> and I was very excited and didn't really know what to expect. Mm -hmm. I have, so I should preface this, that I have never participated in a virtual event of this kind or really any other um, shopping virtual event besides like placing an order of goods online through like mm -hmm. Target or other big box stores, like things like that. Right. <clears throat> so an event like this is was completely new to me and I got my ticket and then I was like, okay, now I can go check out all the stuff that's offered through mm -hmm. having my ticket. And I'm not going to lie. I started to feel really anxious. <laughs> yes. I can relate to this. I definitely can relate. Um, so what did you end up doing? Or not doing. Yeah. So I spent probably too much time <laughs> looking through the vendors before they were available, you know, to even visit. I mean, you could look at who is going to be participating virtually um, and all that stuff. So I spent a lot of time looking through the vendor list and some of them clicking on the link to kind of see their offerings. Mm -hmm. um, and after I had spent some time doing that, I knew I wasn't going to participate in a class or a workshop or anything like that. So I'm, for me, I wasn't going to be participating in that part of the festivities, I guess. Mm -hmm. um, so I can't really speak to how that part of things went. <laughs> Yeah. Um, and I have no idea how they went because I was not at all a part of that. Um, I didn't go to like any kind of demonstration or anything like that. I didn't schedule myself for any of those. I did schedule time in, I think, like three or four virtual booths mm -hmm. initially. Um, so if people are wondering what the heck I'm talking about, you could schedule time to virtually visit with some vendors. They would either just be, 
at their home, I guess, or farm or wherever they were, shop, whatever. Mm -hmm. And some of them had, this is my understanding, like virtual booths set up or like in their space, a real place that they would walk you around. Right. So I did, I scheduled these things and then I kept looking at these booths that I scheduled time with and kept feeling like really anxious. (laughs) And one of them was a woman who makes these stunning spinning wheels. And Mm -hmm. I was like, I'm not going to buy a spinning wheel. I just want to look at them. Right. And and in person, uh, you could wander into a booth and look at them and And wander out. feel like. With a certain amount of anonymity. Yeah. Yeah. Because on Zoom, these were all Zoom links, by the way, for you listeners. So on Zoom, we, you know, your name is on there and you've pre-registered for the time. So there's, there is a level of commitment to even showing up and meeting you. There's a certain anonymity in a big festival and New York Sheep and Wool at Rhinebeck is one of the biggest festivals. It's huge. Ever. Um, and I've always wanted to go. One year. Um, one of these is, days we'll get you there. Yeah. And so it's interesting that this is my first version of going, um, which sort of had, it did have a feeling of like a good old college try. And it had a feeling <laughs> of celebration around it, like yeah. um, of perseverance. Like we're doing it anyway. We fiber folks, like we, this matters to us yeah. and it's fall and the leaves are out and get your needles out and we're going to do this thing. Yeah. Um, and that kind of solidarity feeling felt celebratory and mm-hmm. and was affirming for me as a fiber yeah. person but there was also a feeling of like stiltedness and kind of gloom over it too um only because it just can't be what it was um yeah, yeah. so i i found myself reflecting quite a bit on my own teaching and worrying that mm-hmm. that this is somehow you know on the on this you know no, i don't want to use the word client side but on the student side on the participant side you know what it takes i think about this with my kids all the time like the the six or seven mental leaps it takes to choose to unmute to advocate for your own yeah. learning or to or to pose your own question yeah or to get what you need out of learning that you would not have to do that way in a classroom right um it's a lot it's a lot. So I get that sort of feeling like a guy, you felt like I got a name tag on. I'm the only one in here. Yeah. Am I, should I even be here if I'm not that serious, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. It would have been cool. I had, I don't know if there's a place for them to have this feedback. It would be neat if you could register for these booths as like casual looker, like just browsing. Hmm. Or you could say hoping to leave with a wheel today. Like not that they yeah. don't want to prioritize, the participant, like we all want to be treated equitably in there. But like, if you were going to buy a wheel virtually that day, you should be the only one in the booth. But if you and I were just wanted to see their makers just browse for fun, then they could have had like six or seven of us do yeah. like or at the same time. Yeah. That's now, a great that's idea. A- and I don't know if that was an option, to be honest. I don't think so. And I think, I mean, and even if it is an option in the future, that's a layer of logistical nightmare. I can't imagine anyone really wants to take on, you know, because <laughs> yeah. this thing was really hard to pull off and frankly they did. yeah which is amazing and in a testament way they did to you know they pulled it off yeah and so. that's a huge testament to the malleability and mm-hmm. uh persistence of like yeah. people who are passionate about something whether or not it was fibers in our case it is but you know it's goes to show yeah 
we mean business. We stick together. We're a good community and we really want to yeah. thrive in whatever yeah. way possible. Yeah. So that being said though. So did you go into any I, I canceled all my <laughs> scheduled booth time because I kept feeling I love more it. and more anxious. I love your honesty though. I really can empathize with this. So I think we have some listeners who are really going to empathize with us. We've all been shoppers in times where yeah. you just wanted to explore. Yeah. And I just you want felt, poke around. Yeah. And you felt somehow exposed by the scenario in which you were exploring or how you ended up there or. Yeah. Yeah. We've all felt that way. So, yeah, I didn't actually do any of those. And then I then moved on to, well, I'm going to purchase from vendors virtually or online, you know, I'll visit their shops. Yeah. And yeah. I've visited many and I, oh, I'm so sad to say this. I didn't spend any money. <laughs> didn't have it in you. Do you ever have one of those? Um, well, we were, before we started recording, we were talking about either the fact that we may be, or the fact that we might need to be on what's known as a yarn diet anyway. <laughs> but have you ever had all the stars align for the perfect scenario in which to go for it. And then you find that the inhibitor is in fact you. And yeah. I mean, it. I was in a complete position where I could have spent my budget. Mm -hmm. And this year I told myself I would not be speaking of yarn diet, purchasing any yarn. It would be other fiber related things or tools. Yeah. And I just, I just didn't, I don't know if it was the, I wasn't there. You can't, couldn't be there. I don't know if that's what it was or if I just, I couldn't possibly look at every vendor online right. or, well, I guess I could have, but I didn't want to keep sitting at the computer. Right. It's different. Clicking on links yep. and, yep. um, yeah, so I'm okay with it. I really hope that next year's happens. And if it doesn't, I will still probably get an online ticket to at least help the festival support it in that very tiny way. And maybe sure. next year, instead of focusing on, oh, I'm going to visit booths and spend some money because I know I won't do that, <laughs> I will maybe look at workshops or yeah. classes instead. Yeah. Kind of go into it with a totally different mindset. Um, mm -hmm. That way, I could potentially participate more actively and yes. yeah. enjoyably personal yeah. on a personal level. So yes, mm -hmm. I hear you. That's, that's what happened for me. And I'm really curious to hear your experience. So, well, just briefly, I, I signed up for three vendors also. Um, I tried very hard to attend all three. It was yeah. a little challenging. Um, my connection happened to be not so good that day. Mm -hmm. So I was having yeah. bad luck with my connection, but I did go to two of the three vendors and I just want to shout out these two that I did get to. Yes. Um, one was called Indian Lake Artisans out of Michigan. Uh, Pam and I believe Mark is his name mm -hmm. are the artisans. They make all hexagonal knitting needle products. They're beautiful. They're I know beautiful. the booth you're talking about. You know the booth I'm talking <laughs> yes. about. I love that. You're such a like a veteran. <laughs> So I was eager to purchase at least one needle to test out. Yeah. Uh, and so I wasn't wanting to do it over Zoom, but I, I asked all my questions and I told them that they could expect to hear from me from their website. Oh, and good. 
when I got on their website, because they're a two man um, or a woman and a man, two person operation, they had quite the delay on their shipping. And I was hoping to use this needle for our stocking along. Ah, um, yes. So I sent them a quick note and I gave them our dates and I said, do you have Ooh. it in stock? Like, cause if you have it in stock and if I could have it by go time, and this is my, I really mean, this has to be my go time. I would really love to test one of these and talk about it, you know? So they did get back, they got back to me and it worked out. So I have purchased um, a 16 inch hexagonal needle that I'm going to try to run my stocking. That's awesome. Yep. Yay. And and the other vendor I saw was called Bialo Payton Designs. She's Mm. out of Brooklyn. And uh, she is a metalsmith. She works primarily, I think, in silver and gold. But for New York sheep and wool, she uses different, um, less valuable metals to make shawl pins, hair pins, and other kinds of closures. Yeah. Um, she was working in her studio. So I was able Aww. to see her in the studio in Brooklyn. She asked me if I wanted a tour. I did decline. Um, that's neat, though, that that was, was cool. an option. Yeah. Cool. And uh, it worked out to be the best for me for her to direct me to her Etsy shop. And I... I was able to get a better view of things, to be honest there. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But what I liked about her work is she seems to me to be inspired by really organic forms and also by like really old, like bronze age sort of technologies for, cool. for fasteners. So she had some like penannular style brooches and fibulas and things that reminded me of like Roman archaeology and things like. Awesome. So oh, I, I think perfect. it's cool that she's inspired by that. Yeah. Um, yeah, so it was fun. You know, and I got to say the Indian like artisans, our whole conversation was done. They were outside by their fire pit. Oh, that's <laughs> so, awesome. <laughs> so when I like appeared in the Zoom and they're at their fire pit, I was like, and that was my first one. I was like, oh, I see how this is. This is That's very warm and yeah, wonderful. I, I was like, okay, I can do this. <laughs> but I, I did. I had a lot of the same feelings you did. Oh, that's awesome. All right. Well, should we get to our real life giant? Yes. Is it time to go from Rhinebeck to Romania? uh, Romania. uh, I can't do a good accent. Maybe I'll be able to squirm it in here later. (laughs) So our third of three real life giants is Dracula and vampires. And if you didn't know, uh, what we often refer to as Transylvania is a territory in modern day Romania. So that is why we have titled this episode from Rhinebeck to Romania, which is the best title ever, which <laughs> Amy came up with. And I absolutely love it. I think it was brilliant. <laughs> I'm loving it. Awesome. So Rumpel, yeah. you're going to be our resident historian here. I think you're going to give us a little Ooh. folklore history <laughs> and always you're our natural historian. So hopefully we get to some natural history too. Oh, we will. <laughs> All right. Well, why don't you take it away and tell me why you think that vampires are a good topic for us tonight? Well, all right. I know. So yeah, that some people might be thinking, yeah, uh, vampires aren't giants. What are you doing here? (laughs) You pulling the wool over our eyes? (laughs) 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 No, we have taken the liberty of calling vampires giants in the collective sense. And we can, because our rules are whatever they <laughs> fit for us. So That's why we, it's the whole reason why we do this podcast is because yeah. we get to change the rules every two seconds and we're always following the rules. It's and awesome. It's, it's amazing. We're the <laughs> best. Um, so yeah, so vampires in the collective sense, because um, as I kind of give some very brief background, um, I think when I talk about 
collective sense, you'll kind of see why they're giants in that mindset, I guess. Mm -hmm. Um, So before the contemporary concept of vampires, there were lots of vampire-like creatures Mm -hmm. that were known or believed to exist to humans all around the world. This was not just like a new world or European concept. This was cross-cultural. This was around the world, pretty much universal to, I'm going to say almost all people, if not all people. Um, I'm not sure, but almost everyone at the least. So just to give people... Just to give our listeners a very, very tiny glimpse of vampire or vampire-like creatures, I'm just going to rattle off a couple names of these beings, and we'll have links to these things in the show notes if anybody wants to explore them more, Um, because I'm not going to go into depth about all of these. I just want to kind of give you a little sampling, a little taste, if you will. And it's so cool because it really is like a tour of the world. So yes, it's it's amazing tour with you. So all right. So we have and I I could be completely butchering the names, pronunciations of these names, by the way. Sorry, bear with me. Hopefully you will give it your best effort, right? I I will. (laughs) (laughs) May not go well. (laughs) Um, We have the so again, (laughs) these are various uh, vampire or vampire-like beings. And I should also note that not all of them were considered evil creatures. Mm. So um, we have the Akimu and Edimu, Lilith, Abayafo, Kali, which Kali is one of the um, uh, beings that by many or most were considered not to be evil. She was mm. uh, a defender and struck down demons, if you will. Um, we have Striga, and this one I love, Yaramayahu. Love it. I think that's just so fun to say. It's beautiful. Um, Bavansi Sith, um, and Rikolakas. So that's just a handful of vampires or vampire-like beings from around the world Mm -hmm. and you can you if you are someone interested in learning more about these there'll be links to these and I have to say in preparation for this episode I tried to listen to a few other podcasts about vampires and of course I'm realizing I neglected to put those in my notes but I'll include a couple links in the show notes for people who want to learn beyond what we're going to talk about. Um, awesome. Because I think it's pretty amazing. <laughs> it really <laughs> they're, is. They're really interesting. That's awesome. Um, yeah. So those are just a few. And now the creature who was a real human being that I mm-hmm. would like to talk about now is- Yes. The real life. Yes. Our historical giant, right? Oh, yeah. And- a giant he was in reputation at least. Um, and that would be the real Dracula, Vlad the Impaler. Mm-hmm. Um, and he, Vlad the Impaler, Impaler, <laughs> was in point fact- out, I have to point out, because this is actually, this is sort of sweet. There's a little typo here in our notes, Noel. So it looks oh, like- Oh, I have 
lots of typos because oh, I'm like, well, <laughs> no, that's okay. I'm not criticizing your typing, but there's a little a sweet irony here that in paler, it's spelled as if he would like take you out with a bucket or a pail. <laughs> um, <laughs> so Oops. I just wanted to point that out because it's, it's almost like the rumple version is so sweet. Oh, it's <laughs> like, I keep really looking mean. at that and I'm like, it's not spelled right. I don't know what they're saying. <laughs> and I just left it. Cause I was like, whatever. Oh, unfortunately, okay. <laughs> what you really mean is to run someone through. Oh yes. In a gory way, so. but I'll let you do that. Yes. So I like the impaler. So that's like a kid's book. <laughs> I have to fix it though. Um, place on the beach. <laughs> this is fun. You should go on a date with a vampire and build sandcastles. So funny. All right. <laughs> That's cute. Um, all right. So Vlad, the not bucket carrier, but um, uh, steak driver. How about... Yes. There we go. That's the um, rumble I know. No, there we... <laughs> <laughs> hey, maybe he used knitting needles. I don't know. Maybe. Um, I don't know. They they would have colored his wool that he knit with, I guess. Maybe that's distasteful. Sorry. All right. So this this particular person was Vlad the Third, Prince of Wallachia. Mm-hmm. And he was born around 1431. Um, every reference I read all gives an estimated year of his birth. Nobody seems to say he was born in this year. Mm-hmm. So, okay. Um, his father was of the same name and he, his father was inducted into the order of the dragon, which mm-hmm. this is important because this order was charged, charged with defeating the Ottoman empire at the time. And this was a high honor. So being in the order of the dragon was if you were in the order and believed you needed to defeat the Ottoman empire, you know, this was an honor and, um, a good thing. Mm-hmm. And a noble title. yes. And Vlad too, uh, or Vlad the second was given the surname Dracul, mm-hmm. meaning dragon in Romanian. So we're starting to see the, the story come alive here. I, I presume anyway. Yes. <laughs> so, Vlad Dracul's son eventually would gain uh, the surname of Dracule, meaning son of the dragon. Mm -hmm. And this eventually turned into Dracula. And it was based on what I read in his lifetime, Vlad the Impaler's lifetime, it became Dracula. So Mm -hmm. the drawl or Dracula names were once positive. (laughs) They were not always associated with um, vampires and evil, if you will, Mm -hmm. um, because of the order of the dragon. Um, And so now let's talk about Vlad, the Impaler slash Dracula. And I should just point out that I pulled from a variety of sources to kind of try to better understand this person. And we're not going to go into the gruesome details of what this person supposedly did, which there's evidence that this all the stuff he was said to have done, he did. Mm-hmm. Um, but just to very briefly explain without going into detail. And if you're someone sensitive to descriptive gore, 
you might want to fast forward five seconds. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, So Vlad the Impaler got his name as being an impaler because he chose to punish his enemies and anyone who did wrong by impaling them. And they would die from that impaling. And it was usually not quick. Mm-hmm. So um, that's how he got his name of Vlad the Impaler. And that very significant association of um, what some called bloodlust became associated with Dracula. Mm-hmm. And I think you'll maybe be talking about that soon. But anyway, um, some of the primary sources about uh, Vlad the Impaler are very conflicting, interestingly. Some recount him as a just leader who was simply harsh on his enemies and he put the needs of his people first. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's one side of this individual. However, it would appear that an overwhelming uh, account of people living at the time felt he was a psychopathic tyrant who was cruel and Mm. sadistic. And there are some German texts that were written while he was alive. This wasn't after the fact that he drank blood. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that was true or not. Um, And then many accounts say that even though he was a good and just leader, all the terrifying things he did just completely wiped away any of the good stuff that he did. Mm. Like there was not a true balance for this person. And this is, he, in his mind's eye, based on what I read, he thought he was doing the right thing all the time Mm. and that he was fighting for good, (laughs) even though he was doing these horrific things. And here's the catch. This is what seems to have pushed a lot of people over the edge. Um, You remember how I said he impaled his enemies and anyone he thought did wrong? Mm -hmm. That included people who followed him. If they Mm -hmm. told a lie, if they stole a loaf of bread, if they misled someone if they did something that he perceived as being bad behavior they were they were impaled or punished in some way and that usually ended in them dying which is just crazy to me and he this included everyone men right. women children yeah. um wealthy people poor people those who were homeless it didn't matter who you were um, if you did something that he viewed as being wrong, you would be punished. You'd be made an example. This sounds yeah. like some classic narcissistic paranoia. Yeah. Oh, that gosh. we see <laughs> through leaders throughout history, right? That yeah. can think of some Roman emperors who would not be Ugh. a far cry from this strategy of leadership. It's terrifying, honestly. Yeah, like a reign of terror. Yeah. And so this is what brings us to um I have the tiniest thing to say about Bram Stoker's Dracula. Mm -hmm. According to most historians, um, 
Bram Stoker's Dracula was only eensy weensy inspired by Vlad the Impaler. And it was mostly the name Dracula. Not yeah. any, not really anything to do with the life story of the actual person, even though there seems to be overlaps and interesting ties that bind them. Those details really weren't pulled from Vlad the Third's life story. It was right. a separate thing all in of itself, which is kind of scary and mind-blowing as well. <laughs> well, interesting to think how one's uh, reputation can be so colored by a pop culture phenomenon, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, that here we are so many generations later from Bram Stoker, and yet the Dracula we think of will always be his oh, version. Oh, yeah, you know? yeah. So, well, that seems like a good segue for me to tell you a little bit about Bram Stoker's Dracula, if yes, you would like. I so, would love. Very typical of us. So we have Noel on lore and natural <laughs> history, and then we have Amy on language and literature. This is totally like our things that we love so much. <laughs> so I will tell you some fun facts about Bram Stoker's Dracula. So it was written in 1897. Um, in his own lifetime, Bram Stoker was an Irishman. He was better known to be an assistant to a famous actor and to have run a very well-known theater. So he's mm. actually a theater guy. Interesting. And you might find it interesting to know that in his personal papers after his death was located a clipping of a newspaper article. Mm. And the newspaper article was about the story of Mercy Brown of Exeter, Rhode Island. And oh. she is cited to be the first American vampire. There's some good episodes on... Uh... Other podcasts. Other podcasts. Yeah. Marcy Brown. Yeah. Yep. So I did want to cite one of those actually because I've been meaning for like years, <laughs> like years to. Oh my gosh. Oh Sorry. my God. I've been meaning for like years to finally listen to Lore. I can't oh. believe I haven't. Oh, it. It's one of my favorites. I know. Uh, so this weekend I went for a walk and I listened to the pilot episode, which is old now. It's like yeah. you know, of Lore. Yeah. And what do you know? The pilot episode of Lore is mm -hmm. on the story of Mercy Brown. And Dracula. Uh, so you listeners, if you want to take a deeper dive into the history of the of the Dracula sort of dynasty, the fathers and sons, and the story about this Rhode Island family, the Brown family, I highly recommend that you yeah. listen to the pilot of Lore. It's less than 20 minutes and it's scintillating. Yeah. Um, and I have to, I'm going to interject. I'm sorry, sure. because I have been listening to Lore since it launched, basically. Um, Aaron Mankey, the person who well, the podcaster of that yeah. podcast, he just tells tales and stories and the lore just beautifully, I guess. He's I don't great. know how else to say it. So no, anyway, he's okay. great. No, I, I totally agree. It's so highly researched. Um, he weaves together the mm -hmm. bits and pieces he's researched in a seamless way. It's so well produced. He's like, the he, when we grow up, we, when we grow up, <laughs> we want to be lore. I feel like... Uh, it's a mentor podcast for us. For yeah. Sure. Oh, for sure. Yeah. He's great. Yeah. So the short version of the Mercy Brown tale, though, is just you have this family with four kids. It's Rhode Island. They're, we don't have great medicine around because of the time mm -hmm. and place. And they're all <laughs> suffering from consumption, yeah. uh, which is tuberculosis. And the reason it's called consumption is because you sort of waste away to this disease. So, so many family members went down so quickly to consumption that the town got it in their head that maybe something was up with the family. So the mm -hmm. last surviving family member was a son. His name was Edwin. And they have decided that he too is being taken so quickly by consumption that perhaps it's a family member from the dead who is feasting on his living body. Yeah. And they want to check this out. 
So they exhume <sighs> the bodies. So sister and mother are all suitably decomposed as they should be after 10 years. The very young Mercy Brown, who died at the age of 19, she had, I guess, the misfortune in this case of dying in the winter. So she had been kept in a stone, uh, the equivalent of a, you know, morgue, I guess. Yeah. Um, Because you can't bury in the winter when the ground is that hard. So she'd been kept in this stone building before she was buried. So she was only recently buried, really. Mm-hmm. And they exhumed her and they, and this is, there's a little content preview. If anyone's not in the mood for a little bit of gore, they did <laughs> want to ascertain if there was any blood left or any organs that hadn't decomposed to see if she was in fact somehow feasting on living. And they did find coagulated blood in her heart and liver, which they yeah. had removed. Yep. And so then as, as typically oh, happens, in here, I don't here know, comes. <laughs> the decision was made to take, the remains of Mercy Brown, grind them up on a stone, create a tonic, and feed it to Edwin. Of course. What else would you do? That I mean, is the that only was my solution. first thought. I mean, I was kind of leaning towards like <laughs> breakfast bread, but they went for tonic. So anyway. <laughs> I would have made a simple syrup. I'm just saying. A <laughs> <laughs> cocktail? We'll throw some bourbon yes. in there. So <laughs> oh my gosh, Edwin so did morbid. in fact, so morbid. So Edwin did oh. in fact take the tonic. He died like two months later anyway, probably because oh. you know what? It was tuberculosis. And yeah. But she, but this ended up in the papers and it ended up in the hands of Bram Stoker when he was in New York, uh, working in a theater. And so he had a clipping in his personal effects of Mercy Brown. And so that she is believed to be not only the original American vampire, but also the inspiration in addition to. Wow. I never knew that. That's so that's really fun. Yeah. Yeah. And then a couple other things I wanted to highlight about dracula and i haven't read it since high school however i'm enjoying it as of yesterday oh um i found a free from my friend fiona the librarian you'll meet her soon (gasps) i found a free copy like new york library copy that's scanned onto google books Mm -hmm. but then i thought i remember thinking this book is amazing so i went hunting around (laughs) into audible Mm. and i found a recent full cast recording (gasps) with alan cumming it's so good it is so good so I will have I, to check that out. Yeah, oh my gosh. It's, I'm only like two hours into it. It's yeah. amazing. And I was walking out in our area. We have this beautiful um, wooded and riverbank area called the Meadows. Mm-hmm. And I'm out in these gorgeous New England October trees and these yes. crispy leaves on the ground and like no Ooh. one's around. And I'm like, oh my God, I got to go home. Like I can't, <laughs> I can't be doing this 5K with Bram Stoker. It's scaring me. It was so good. Um, but what I wanted to tell you about it and not only to recommend this audible, you really give it a go. It's, it's yeah, I'm listening to game of Thrones right now, but so when I'm done with that, I'll uh, check out Dracula. Oh my gosh. Well, I wanted to point out that the genre of this work, um, of this sort of, you know, Gothic horror novel is epistolary, which I think is really cool. So Mm. epistolary is a literary form where instead of a narrator or narrators just going on in prose, um, describing it's a multiple perspective narrative, which happens sometimes in books, except not done through narrative, but through more letters and journaling and other personal Hmm. narrative. So an epistola, that's the Latin word for letter. And so this genre is old and the Romans used this genre in their literature also. So there are a couple of examples of Roman works that are in letter form. 
Um, and so there's a letter to a person and then a response and then a person mm -hmm. and a response and the same, you know, the same author crafting both perspectives, but the idea of a story told in letters is a, is not a new concept, but it's so rarely used. I think that it yeah. can catch you each time at how creative it really is, you know? Yeah. So the Dracula story, as Bram Stoker tells it, is comprised of things like newspaper clippings, personal journals, letters back and forth, and ship's logs and things oh. like that. So the whole story is constructed through what manifests in these little hints that mm -hmm. bring the narrative. Um, it's really genius. It's captivating. So, mm -hmm. um, and there's some female characters too, who get some airtime, which is always great for 1897. So <laughs> yes, uh, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Um, One of the most famous epistolary works in the ancient Roman tradition is called the Heroides. It's a series hmm. of poems by Ovid. And the Heroides are letters from like a bunch of famous jilted women in mythology to the dude that jilted them. <gasps> really? Yeah. So like letter one is Penelope Whoa. to Odysseus. <gasps> you know? Um there's I've a letter read from, those. Yeah, there's a letter from Gosh. Helen to Paris, you know. Whoa. So are they scathing? <laughs> well, or are they like, I miss you? What are, I, know, I don't know. I know. What are they like? They're a range. They're oh a range my gosh. of them. Um, and I love teaching them because the kids are like, they fall for it for a while and then they'll scratch their heads and be like, wait, a dude wrote this. I'm like, right. <laughs> no, you cannot fall for this. She, this is never, it is still being mansplained. It's still being oh, mansplained. Oh. So um, even though you think you're getting this one feminist perspective, just remember, written for men by a man. Don't forget. Mm. So it's fun. Interesting. Um, anyway. And then one other fact I wanted to add about the Bram Stoker's work is there's mm. a important section. It's like chapter six and seven, I think it is, where Dracula is leaving uh, Romania for London. He's bought a house in London and he's traveling on this Russian ship from the schooner from point A to point B. And in the hold of the ship are 50 boxes of earth from Transylvania. Uh, yeah. And it's just so symbolic, you know, like this, why does this earth need to be used as ballast anyway? Or why does it need to be tr transplanted? Like, why are we bringing soil from Transylvania all the way? to yeah. London. And that is the means by which in this episode, which is constructed only through ship's logs and newspaper clippings yeah, and, and um, some eyewitness accounts in the port when they get there. Um, you know, what is the reason why it's constructed this way? But it's so fascinating because like Dracula is basically hiding in disguise somehow in these boxes of dirt. Um, crazy. And when he does appear and the poor crew all have issues and start to disappear um the eyewitness account in the story says that when it appears in port that a dog-like figure leaps out of the ship and you know disembarks and makes it to land and runs off into the woods so he almost has like sort of a werewolf appearance there i I'll, and i can add to that if you want yeah go for it. that um so uh, contrary to popular belief Vampires do not turn into bats. I'm sorry, oh, people. Man. Womp womp. But they're womp still associated with them, which we'll talk about later. Yeah. But um, wolves and cats, owls, all these other creatures of the night yeah. were associated with um, vampires taking the form of those animals. And yeah, there was and also a cross association with witches. So Yes. 
but please continue. But yes, I am not surprised by that. Yeah. Yeah. So after this like wolf, like dog, like creature is seen running into the woods is sort of the end of that episode. But the reason why I wanted to bring it up, of course, is because the ship's name in the book is so symbolic. It's called the Demeter. Mm. And Demeter is the Greek name for the Roman god Ceres, C-E-R-E-S. She's the goddess of grain and fertility. So it's just the Hmm. perfect name for the ship that's carrying this dirt that is transplanting him. Yeah. Um, Continuing his growth. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Continuing the lineage, you know, in a new place. Yeah. So um, it's almost like they're bringing crops to a new colony to plant him there, you know. So I love that. And I found, um, thinking about the Demeter, I also found a more recent novel by a guy named Doug Lamoureux. Um, who thought that that single episode in Bram Stoker's Dracula was so worthy of telling Mm -hmm. that he's written a fiction horror thriller novel just on the passage of the Demeter. So if anyone is intrigued about not just being trapped in the clutches of Dracula, but like make it worse by putting you on a boat. (laughs) (laughs) Yay! (laughs) Uh, If that's the kind of thrill you're after, I wanted to recommend that I had discovered that book and I'll link for it. (laughs) I'll link to it for listeners on our notes cool so natural history tell me about the bat give me something good on bats i want to associate them with bats they're so cute bats are amazing (laughs) animals they are Um, amazing animals so i'm not going to talk about all bats there are more than 1400 species of bats wow and they are immensely diverse in size their shape the habitat where they live and what they eat Hmm. so i'm guessing most of you already are like duh bats drink blood well not (laughs) all of them only four are exclusively blood drinkers oh so just to give you bats are getting a bad rap huh i know bats are amazing animals so just to give listeners an idea um some bats are insectivores which mean they feed on insects others are carnivores and they feed on other vertebrates apparently that includes other bats um Mm. some only feed on the nectar or pollen of plants those are nectarivores Mm -hmm. and some are frugivores which they eat just fruit but Then there are the bats who feed on blood. Blood. Awesome. And these are the bats that I'm going to talk about. Um, Cool. And I think they're adorable. (laughs) I know not everyone would agree or see them as (laughs) cute, precious animals, but really they are. And I... I I will link to this. I don't know if I link to it in any of the notes, but vampire bats have adapted because of what they feed on. They are very efficient on land. Hmm. So not only can they fly, but they can walk and run across solid ground. Very cute. And there is really interesting video footage of this that I'll, I'll link to, um, in our show notes and watching that video was crazy because I forgot to look up what the creatures are called, but in the, um, the dark crystal, 
there are these, those white furry creatures that have the long legs Mm -hmm. and they kind of like lope across the land in this strange way. That's what the bats look like walking. Oh, that's cool. I got to see one. Really cool. Um, I'll, I'll link to it. I forgot to pull up a link for tonight, but, um, anyway, so anyway, so that was like, I already liked bats. Now I'm like, oh, they're so cool. All right. So, um, bats were not associated to vampires until quite recently when blood drinking bats were discovered in the new world before this time, bats had no connection to vampires as I understand it. Um, they were first vampire bats were first documented in the early 1800s and then later connected to vampirism, uh, in the late 1800s when Dracula was published. There you go. Um, so interestingly, the naming of vampire bats, uh, actually stems from vampires, not the other way around. So mm-hmm. vampires weren't named after vampire bats. Did that make sense? Did I yeah. Do that right? Okay. Mm-hmm. It's like a chicken or egg kind of a thing. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> well, apparently vampires came first uh, or maybe the bats did come first. I actually don't know. Anyway. Hmm. <laughs> Another mystery. Um, so they bat vampire bats do not kill their host. Good. So there we go. So there we go. You You've cleared bit, their name. If you are bit by a vampire bat, they will not kill you by drinking their blood, by drinking your blood. <laughs> they only drink about a teaspoon or so of blood. Mm-hmm. And they actually don't drink it by like sucking it from the vein or whatever. They mm-hmm. um, make their incision with their little incisor teeth Mm -hmm. and as the blood flows out they lap it up like a cat or a dog would do much cuter yeah i mean it's it's darling (laughs) (laughs) they're so cute um and then the other really cool thing i mean i think this is really cool is that if they are feeding off of an animal that has long fur and it's hard to get to the skin they have uh their front little teeth in between their incisors are so sharp that they can just give the animal a little haircut. They just shave the hair. There you go. And they're at the skin. Boom. They have their meal. Um, wow. Which I mean, come on. That That's is cool. So Evolution. Cool. <laughs> That's it's so amazing. cool. Um, anyway. <sighs> so. I have more things to swoon over the vampire bats and let's see, I have to kind of re retract my brain. All right. So as far as I understand it, there are only four species of vampire bats that are exclusively feeding on blood. That means that's their only food source. And one of them is extinct. Um, and that species actually lived during the Pleistocene and it was Desmodus draculae. Mm-hmm. And it was about 30% bigger than our modern vampire bats. And wow. who knows? Maybe they were drinking <laughs> the blood of dire wolves. Maybe. Want I to don't... know more about dire wolves? <laughs> Listen. Well, you can check out a previous episode. <laughs> awesome. Um, and then the common vampire bat prefers the blood of mammals, particularly livestock. Mm-hmm. And then the hair, 
hairy leg, hair legged vampire bat <laughs> and white winged vampire bats both prefer drinking blood from birds, which hmm. go figure. I had hadn't even considered that they would drink bird blood. Apparently, um, penguins are one of their huh. favorite blood sources. Um, but that all being said, vampire bats are opportunistic and they're going to feed on whatever they can to get their meal because if they miss two meals, they will starve to death, which is mm. very sad. Mm-hmm. Um, and these animals are, they live in communities. Not all bats are communal, um, but the vampire bats are. And they actually, if uh, another bat in their colony is has missed a meal and is really hungry, it will, you know, I guess, turn to its neighbor and be like, feed me. (laughs) The little neighbor, its neighbor, depending on the bat, they don't all do this, but I guess there's enough of them that do this. Um, They regurgitate a little bit of the blood meal they last had and share it with the bat so that everyone is cared for. That's right. Um, I just, I thought that was really nice. Nice bats. Nice vampire bats. So bats don't, and this is a, a general thing for all bats. Um, while bats don't kill humans, they do and can carry diseases that can mm. kill us or other animals. Um, primarily, as I'm sure probably most listeners are aware, per- the worst one is rabies. So, mm. you know, while it's a very small percentage, I want to say like less than 3% of any bat mm-hmm. that would potentially bite a human um, care, could infect you with rabies. It is a possibility. And they're not the bat itself isn't going to hurt you other than that, if that makes sense. And yep. I'll go on the record and I'll say some years back, we had a bat in our house mm-hmm. and it was in our bed and we awoke with it in our faces. Oh my. So my husband and I did get rabies shots many years ago when that happened because in the chance that, you know, something mm-hmm. happened. And uh, I hope none of you out there ever have to go through that <laughs> or because they really are awful. <laughs> yes. We um, had a couple yeah. of um we have a few interesting bat stories too. Maybe on our next mini cast, we should just trade our bat stories Ooh. as a follow-up. Maybe we'll Ooh. do a mirror cast and trade <laughs> bat stories. Cause I have some crazy encounters that yeah? I had with bats in this one house that I lived in. Uh. Um, but anyway, oh yeah. my gosh, that's so cool. So that's, oh, man. that's my bat spiel. I think they're really wonderful animals and you know, they get a bad rap and, I know I it makes sense. I understand why people are can be frightened of them, but yeah. the ones that eat bugs, you know, keep those around. They're eating That's the right. pesky things that That's right. bother the heck out of us and carry just as bad diseases, frankly. So yep. Yep. um that's my bat spiel. I love it. <laughs> That's so great. Okay. Thanks, Noelle, for all of that awesome information on bats and yeah. for clearing the name of vampire bats <laughs> everywhere. And for maybe making me even think about cuddling one, except for whatever this bedtime story is you have with Will that I don't want to know about waking up with a bat. (laughs) Yikes. Uh, More on that another time. Yeah. Um, But speaking of what one might want to curl up in bed with, I have a great book review. 
mm. coming up. Uh, my friend Fiona, the librarian, I do call her that. That's her full title. I love that. Fiona, the librarian. <laughs> we share a favorite book together. It's a book from 2005 called The Historian. And I really wanted to pull from her why she loves it so much. Like, and why do I love it so much? And so we actually did a little mini interview that I've recorded awesome. to share our experiences reading and also recommending this fantastic book about Dracula and vampires called yes. The Historian. So I'm going to patch that in now. I hope you all enjoy this interview with Fiona, the librarian. Great. Hi, Fiona. Hi, good morning. Good morning. So uh, I wanted to see if you might want to introduce yourself to our audience, because I have always called you affectionately as Fiona the Librarian. It's <laughs> it's one whole title. But do you want to introduce yourself quickly, who you are, where you are, things like that? Sure. Um, my name is Fiona, and I'm a librarian, in fact, a librarian. Mm -hmm. um, and <laughs> I um, work with Amy at a local school. I live in West Hartford and I would say my main hobbies are reading and reading. Love it. So, and petting my dog, also reading. Oh yeah. We gotta we gotta mention Jimmy. We gotta give yeah. Jimmy a shout out. Yeah. He, he wants his little moment of fame, right? Yeah, exactly. All right. So we have a common book that we love so much that fits really beautifully in the theme of this episode. And so I wondered if you wanted to just mention that book quickly that we share the author and maybe give us like just a one sentence teaser premise about what that book is about. Yeah, absolutely. So the book is called The Historian and the author is Elizabeth Kostova. That's with a K. Uh, it's essentially a story about Dracula. Um, the sort of, and it sounds... It's a, I would say, so I would say it's a historical fiction, but also a thriller as well. That's how I would describe it, a historical thriller. So you learn something, but you're also scared a little bit, which is exactly how I feel every time I read the book. <laughs> and it says a lot, it says a lot if you're a librarian and you've reread it, right? Oh yeah. I've reread this book. Um, when I suggest it to friends who haven't read it, I say, I'm going to actually reread it with you while you're reading it so we can talk about it. So I've oh. probably reread it at least four times. Oh, that's awesome. It is such yeah. a great book. So it's sort of an epic quest, I think. It's of an academic nature, right? So we have some academics in, in this book, and they're traveling all over the world, uh, sort of foraging for relevant information as they try to uncover this thrilling mystery. We'll put it that way. Mm -hmm. uh, but then they also are getting sucked in as they go. Oh, I like uh -huh. that. Um, but one of the things that you have mentioned that you love so much about the book is it's many perspectives. I wonder if you could give us a teaser on that sort of style of writing sure. and why you like it. Sure. So I really appreciate the multiple timelines and sort of like the jumping back and forth between time periods. Um, mainly because I think it, it does a couple things. As a, as a reader, like, you know, I'm always looking for the book that's going to be like the next like book that sort of keeps me like up at night or makes me wake up early to read. And this book definitely does that because the jumping back and forth keeps the suspense moving. And, and also it'll leave you hanging where you're then going to the next timeline and learning about something else that happened and then having to go back and, and sort of like catch back up with the other timeline that's happening as well. Mm -hmm. So I think that it keeps you, it actually helps, has people, I think it, you read faster when it's that kind of story um, because you want to find out 
what happened with each sort of timeline. It's like, pick your own adventure, you know, and yeah. like kind of like find yeah. out what I always like read those like to the very end and like kind of, you know, went from there. So I think that's that I love about that. those kind of books I love. And this book also has like the story within a story, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. I think is also very captivating mm-hmm. to readers. Yeah. And I think um, when we've talked about it before, you mentioned it can almost be a little confusing, which is not discouraging. It's actually kind of scintillating um, that you get really, you want to go back and reread a passage and try to figure out what's going on. And I, I love it because as a <clears throat> nerdy Latin teacher type, it really is, it's kind of meta, right? It's like the research process. So this book is involves some researchers or some people who are trying to uncover some things and there's some awesome dusty library scenes, which are great. And reading it is like following a trail of research. You find dead ends, you trails just die out on you. You have to back out and revisit, maybe pivot your strategy. So to me, the narrative is sort of a metaphor for that process. You know? That's great. I love that. Absolutely. I totally agree. And I think the reason I've also reread it so often is because it's the type of book where you can go back and catch and make a new connection again that you missed the first or second time when you read yeah. it. Yeah. yeah. And you said um, when we were in the library at our school and somebody was wandering by and we were recently recommending it, you said, well, in this time of COVID-19 too, it'll take you all over the world. So here you have, I don't know, what is it? 800 pages. It's a big one. Yeah. <laughs> right. It's, it's a tome. It's, it's a, a tome. tome. Um, but it'll take you everywhere from like Istanbul to Italy to France. And I remember you saying any book you open that has a map of Europe on the inside <laughs> on the inside in. cover is like, this is going to be good. Yeah, I'm in. It's got like an appendix, you know, because you got to remember the characters. It's so cool. And it's neat because in Bram Stoker's Dracula is comprised of a narrative that's done in a sort of epistolary style of journals and newspaper clippings and ship's logs and letters. And that's what builds the evidence of the story. So I think it's a bit of a nod to that too. That's a great point because as you may or may not know, I haven't actually read Dracula um, although I will say I added it to my list after reading this book and I haven't gotten around to it, but I may have mentioned this to you that I have seen interview with a vampire with Tom Cruise and Brad Pitt. So, oh, well, that makes you an expert. <laughs> <laughs> that makes you an expert on vampires. <laughs> awesome. Okay. What else did I want to ask you about this? Hmm. Okay. I think the last thing I'll ask you is you mentioned some good times and places to read this book and some not so good times and places to read this book. So why don't you give us that range? Absolutely. So I, um, I always read this book in the summertime because I find it chilling and I'm a little bit of a scaredy cat and there absolutely have been moments in the book where I am scared. Uh, I think that's created by the, the author does a great job of suspense. Um, and then what I, I wouldn't recommend reading this book at alone at night in a library or archive, though I'm not sure how many people would find themselves there unless they have a home library of some kind with like, you know, dark curtains or something. Yes. Um, but because you may just feel like Dracula is around the corner, ready to puncture your neck <laughs> with his fangs. We don't want that. No. No, thank you. Oh man, this reminds me, I should tell you the story sometime about when I was reading um, Twilight and a bat ended up in my bedroom flying around. <laughs> I was like, it's Edward. That's what I was thinking. Oh <laughs> my gosh. That's Amy. That's something. It was scary. I'll tell you about that another time. If you want yeah. to the library. <laughs> yeah. I need oh to hear that. My. 
Okay. And uh, let's end with a quick like feminist shout out for a wonderful female author. And you, I think, love these characters. There are a lot of strong female characters. Mm-hmm. Do you want to just mention that too? Because I yeah, absolutely. So if you if you choose to if you know if if listeners choose to do a little research on the book, they'll find that there when it was published, there were a lot of comparisons to the Da Vinci Code, which is another like historical fiction thriller that I love. Except I found the 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 female characters in this book to be much more interesting to me. I almost feel as though they could have their own book with their stories because their stories are sort of told and, and yet there's so much unsaid that intrigued me. And I felt their strengths and their, like their, their life experiences. I just found them to be extremely well, well thought out, well-written characters, you know, people, people, actual real people. It definitely felt to me that they were, you know, they were real people. Yeah. Their motivations and their (laughs) motivations and desires and choices they made and decisions. And yeah, it was, I found them to be the, the, the best part of the book for sure. Yeah. I love yeah. it. And there's also that one other mystery that I think we can tease with that one perspective. And I read it when it came out in 2005, maybe. Uh, yeah, so I yeah. don't remember all the details, but there is one perspective that is remains unresolved or anonymous throughout the book, right? There's one narrator we never figure out. Exactly. Narrator is. I think that is such a cool creative choice for an exactly who i think the yeah the narration changes throughout but then there's the sort of like the overarching narrator that we that we don't know and Mm -hmm. that kind of makes it feel like you're the narrator in a way because you're learning about things as you go and yeah 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 well awesome well if you want to go on a sort of global and dusty library and academic and historical feminist jaunt (laughs) in search of Dracula who might find you before you find him. Uh, We highly recommend the book historian by Elizabeth Costova and Fiona, the librarian, you know what, to pull this off, we got up before school. It's early in the morning. That's the only time my brain works. Well, I appreciate you so much. And I think uh, our listeners are going to love hearing about this. So if you could be the resident librarian for Rumpel and the Frog, we'll come back to you for our next recommendation. I would be honored. (laughs) That is like the ultimate to me. Awesome. I'll get you you. one of these Britney Spears headsets so you can feel feel as cool in your bathrobe as I do right now. I would start wearing it around regularly all the time. Sometimes I do. It makes me feel more important. All right, Fiona, I hope you have a great day at school today and I'll see you soon. Okay, great. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Okay, I hope you enjoyed that. I hope you get your own copy at your local bookstore or your local library and don't read it alone on a spooky night, (laughs) but but do enjoy. I'd love to, we'd love to hear from you and I can pass it on to Fiona the librarian if you find yourself loving that amazing novel as much as we did. Awesome. All right. So Thank you. before we wrap our episode on our third real life giant, we can't stop without some foraging and Rumpel has found some really cool baddie vampire related things yes. out there to make our crafty <laughs> hearts sing uh, before they get the blood sucked out of them. <laughs> so Noel, what did you find when you were foraging? So we have some vampire yarn bowls. Uh, These are so cool. Um, This is from an (laughs) Etsy shop called 
and I'm sorry if I'm mispronouncing this, but Baron Tando Ceramics. These are so cute. Yeah, they're really adorable. Um, And they have a whole variety of other awesome tools for crafters. But these yarn bowls are vampires. And I, to me, they look like little bats. Um, Yeah. They're cute. And there's, uh, she has, or I'm saying she, I'm not sure if that's true. Sorry. They, the shop has a black and white one and a white and black one, like where the <laughs> colors are kind of reversed. Yeah. Um, oh, it's and so cute. They're just, they're darling. They are so <laughs> they are darling. so adorable. Oh man. I want one. I'm looking at them on Etsy. Yeah. These are really sweet. They are so really it's fun. like the little uh, batty wing, as you might imagine, or yes. sort of the handles on these bowls. Yeah. And then, of course, it has that beautiful notch for feeding your yarn. Um, yeah. If you haven't used a yarn bowl before, it's a very pleasing experience to have a fancy tool. It to is. Feed yarn. It feels really I love special. them. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Are those cool? And just think, when you if you aren't feeding yarn through it, it that'd be a beautiful candy bowl for this time of year uh-huh. on, the, yeah. on your dining room table or whatever. They're really or beautiful. next to your bedside. Um, yeah. <laughs> oh, look at that! The picture with the pear is my favorite. Oh, a black. Yeah, and a they're white they're one. adorable. Um, they're really really cute. Their little so, vampire teeth are are sweet. <laughs> and really, like if you're looking for a hard to shop for uh, vampire enthusiast, yeah, who yeah. also loves yarn or putting things in cute containers, <laughs> super cute. Uh, check that out because they're really really awesome. Oh man, you always find the best stuff. What else do you have? I just have one other thing for us tonight. And this is a hand embroidery kit um, from Odd Anna Stitch on Etsy. And this one is V is for vampire. Um, Oh, that's cool. It's really, I really love this person's aesthetic Mm -hmm. and her work in general speaks to my heart. Like this is, this is my wheelhouse. I love this kind of thing. So basically what we're seeing is uh, you would get a kit to make this really funky. hmm, I don't know if Gothic is the right word, but it's almost like a dramatic. Yeah. Um, illustrative embroidery. Yeah. I mean, Um, it's a, the one I'm looking at is a woman in profile, right? Almost like you would be on a cameo. Yeah, yeah. Um, because the embroidery isn't an embroidery hoop, but that round frame makes you yes. feel cameo also. Yeah. Um oh, look at the the shading of the colors of the threads though to sort of design her elaborate um formal sort of hairstyle is and really she, neat. Yeah, and she's got like these silvery colors in her hair. She's got mm-hmm. bright red lips. Yeah. Um the woman's profile is a very simple stitched outline and then she's wearing over her eyes and nose uh a bat mask essentially and it's just I mean I love it and many of her pieces or kits are in this realm of uh women or people having part or all of their face obscured by a mask of I think all animals, but I could be mistaken. Um, maybe there are other things as well. Um, I guess I'm drawn to the animal ones. So yeah, but they're really creative. Uh, the other examples are, uh, like a woman in pigtails with a pig like mask, um, a woman with a loose side braid with a fish looking or shark looking. They're very creative. Yeah. 
Boy, that'll make you want to embroider to, to oh render my that gosh. image. Heck yeah. Wow. <laughs> I would just do a sampler of a whole wall yeah. of all of these. Oh, they're really cool. So yeah. fun. Yeah. So a yarn bowl. And so, so we've got some ceramics and seeing some embroidery floss in our foraging is fun. Yeah. You know? so, Something different, a little bit yeah. different that anyone could still enjoy, I think. Yeah. So. <laughs> oh my gosh. I love it. Fantastic. All right. Well, we'll be switching modes a little bit next week away from our, that was the last part three in our three-part mini series on yes. real life giants. We're going to be uh, digging into really getting ready for our stocking along. So you've, you've probably heard of that. If you're a regular listener, if you're not a regular listener, thank you for joining us and check out our website for any info. If you might be interested in joining our Ravelry group, or our podcasting group anywhere. You can find some information wherever we are on Instagram or our website about joining in any way because we don't like rules <laughs> or stocking along. So yes. we'll be and kicking that off soon, right? Next, next week. Yeah. Oh my um, gosh. Are we casting on next week? Yeah. Oh my gosh. During recording. Although oh, I think I might actually literally cast on before we start recording. Yeah. So I can count everything. Yeah, I hear you. But I'll start the first row with everybody. Is that yeah, fair? That's Do you fair. all understand? Yep. I could lie and tell you I'm casting on, but then no, I'll feel bad. <laughs> no, we might have to do a little pre-work so that we can concentrate. Yes. Um, so that's coming up. And then, of course, on November 1st, we <gasps> will be, so Rumple and I will be live in the flesh in 3D, six feet apart with masks on. Yes. Um, in the pastures up at the Hillstead Museum. And where we will be knitting with the sheep. Wait, I'm just totally talking over. You. It's okay. Cause you're so excited. I love I it. Am. So just a reminder, that's from 12 to 2 PM on Sunday, November 1st, please pre-register as space is limited uh, because well, the sheep get most of the space, but if you want to <laughs> knit with the sheep, please pre-register and we would love to see you in person. Yeah. Awesome. Yay. Okay. Well, I think that's it. Right, yeah. Are we good? I think so. That, that's all. Okay. Uh, I don't have any more blood to give tonight. That's <laughs> all I got. I don't know. I love it. I love it. All right. Well, so long for now, everyone. It's time for us to return to the woods to forage some more. But we'll be back soon with more stories and stitching. Until we meet again. Happy, Happy stitching. stitching.